Good morning. Thank you all for being here today in the temple and uh, on Zoom. It's good to see uh, what I assume are your smiling faces. <laughs> and thank you especially to Galen Roshi for inviting me to give my first Dharma talk. Um, as Galen mentioned, um, in her view, it can be beneficial to the Sangha and especially those who are new to practice to occasionally hear a talk from someone who is somewhat new to practice themselves. So this Dharma talk isn't so much a lesson from a teacher as it is a story from the perspective of a student. Because our tradition is that when someone gives their first Dharma talk, they tell a story, uh, the story of how they came to practice. For me, that story, I think, is a story about figuring out how to be a Zen student. And that's a question that's been on my mind, how to be a student of Zen. I don't want to say a good student of Zen or a bad student, but different ways of being a student of Zen. And we call these first Dharma talks, way-seeking mind talks, because I think all students of Zen start with that one thing in common, a way-seeking mind. In my opinion, the way-seeking mind in its ideal form, the epitome of way-seeking mind, is the way-seeking mind that belongs to my grandnephew, Judah. I didn't get to meet Judah until he was two and a half years old because he was living with his mom and his dad and his little brother in Malawi in Southeast Africa. When I did meet Judah, I learned that he has a way-seeking mind that is fascinated by everything. Trains, trucks, his little brother, watching the clothes go around in the dryer, which he can do for hours. <laughs> everything that he encounters in his life. I also learned that Judah loves telling you about his way-seeking mind, giving his own kind of way-seeking mind talks. And sometimes he'd tell me things in Chichewa, which is the language he spoke with his friends in Malawi, and I wasn't too sure what he was trying to tell me. And sometimes he'd tell me things in English, and I wasn't entirely sure what he was <laughs> trying to tell me. But what I did know is he was telling me his own experience and his own words, and I enjoyed that. And so now that you know who my, my role model is for this talk, <laughs> I am going to tell you about my experiences that brought my way-seeking mind to practice. For me, it's a, it's a story in two parts um, with, a, with a big gap in between. The first part starts when I was in college. I was supposed to be studying English and philosophy, but like a lot of college students, I had a lot of other things going on in my life. For me, it was mostly being an 18-year-old coming out of the closet in the midst of the AIDS crisis in a deeply conservative Southern state. Sometimes instead of reading Milton or Plato, 
I wanted to read things that spoke to my experiences more directly. So I was browsing in a kind of hippie bookstore one day and a novel caught my eye. It was called Queer and it was written back in the 1950s by William S. Burroughs. That novel was my introduction to what we now call the beat generation of writers, including Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg, Philip Whalen, and Jack Kerouac. The Beats had these incredible way-seeking minds. Their curiosity about the entire universe was virtually boundless. They wandered the country and the entire world, working odd jobs, meeting people the world didn't usually pay too much attention to, and writing about their experiences in these ways that were totally new. When I started reading the Beats, I learned that their movement wasn't just a literary movement. It was also a spiritual movement. The Beats insisted that you couldn't separate the literary from the spiritual, that there are just two angles of looking at the same thing. They came from different spiritual traditions. Jack Kerouac was Catholic. Allen Ginsberg was Jewish. William S. Burroughs was Protestant. And they explored different spiritual traditions as well, including Hinduism and Islam. But they were inspired by Buddhism, most of all, specifically Mahayana Buddhism, and most especially Zen. And that's how I came to discover Zen, through them. There's this poem by Allen Ginsberg that I loved so much, I put it in a picture frame when I was in my 20s. And I've kept it on a shelf for a wall everywhere I've lived since then. It's called Gospel Noble Truths. And I thought I'd share it with you this morning. Born in this world, you got to suffer. Everything changes, you got no soul. Try to be gay, ignorant, happy. You get the blues, you eat jelly roll. <laughs> there is one way you take the high road in your big wheel, eight steps you fly. Look at the view, right to horizon. Talk to the sky, act like you talk. Work like the sun, shine in your heaven. See what you've done, come down and walk. Sit, you sit down, breathe when you breathe. Lie down, you lie down. Walk where you walk, talk when you talk. Cry when you cry, lie down, you lie down, die when you die. Look when you look, hear what you hear, taste what you taste here, smell what you smell, touch what you touch, think what you think, let go, let it go, slow, earth, heaven, and hell. Die when you die, die when you die, lie down. You lie down, die when you die. We have a copy of that poem in our library here at Zen Center um, in an anthology called Big Sky Mind, Buddhism and the Beat Generation. It is a terrific book. And 30 years later, I, I still love the beats. You know who else loved the beats? Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, our first ancestor in the West, 
in our tradition of Soto Zen Buddhism and the founder of San Francisco Zen Center. Suzuki Roshi came from Japan and landed in San Francisco right in the middle of this scene in 1959. And he loved the beats too. I was surprised when I learned that. I still have a hard time picturing <laughs> Suzuki Roshi hanging out with the beats, but it's true. I learned about this mostly from Dharma talks given by Mel Weitzman Roshi, who passed away earlier this year. When Mel Weitzman was a young man, he was there by Suzuki Roshi's side during his first years in America. This is how Mel Weitzman explained Suzuki Roshi's affinity for the beat generation. He said, these are the people Suzuki Roshi liked because they're not just following society's materialistic way of life. He likes that rebellious spirit looking for something deeper. Mel Weitzman also remembered Suzuki Roshi telling him, I like the students who are mischievous because then I can see who they are. Well, the beats were definitely mischievous. They didn't hide behind trying to be good or trying to be any particular way. Instead of studying and writing about the things that writers in the 1950s were supposed to study and write about, many of them were studying Buddhist scriptures and exploring Zen. And that's how they began to popularize Zen in America, even before Suzuki Roshi arrived. I can see why the Beats version of Zen captured the imagination of lots of young people at that time, because a few decades later, I was in college and it had the same effect on me. But what I didn't realize was that the Beats version of Zen was missing something essential. It was pretty much all talk and no practice. Mel Weitzman said he had no idea what formal practice even was until he met Suzuki Roshi. He learned about formal practice when Suzuki Roshi got here and started sitting Zazen at 5.45 every morning in the auditorium at Sakoji, a Jewish synagogue turned Buddhist temple in San Francisco. For Americans, that kind of disciplined practice was literally a foreign concept but people were curious. They started just showing up uninvited to sit with Suzuki Roshi. And according to Mel Weitzman, Suzuki Roshi encouraged them. And he explained to them, to practice, you need limitations. Freedom means freedom with limitations. Zazen provides the structure that provides the greatest freedom. I imagine that most of us hear that and, and we say, yeah, we get that. It's true that in our practice, we rest in boundless awareness, what the beats like to call big mind. But within that boundless freedom, we work with limitations. During our recent practice period, in particular, Galen Roshi and our head student, Gail, brought our attention to working with boundaries or edges in our practice. A few of the beat writers came to understand this too, and they're the ones who developed practices that lasted. Allen Ginsberg was a lifelong Buddhist. Philip Whalen, 
received Dharma transmission and Suzuki Roshi's lineage at the age of 63. Our abbot had the good fortune of knowing Philip Whelan during his lifetime. Philip Whelan actually wrote much of his poetry at Tassajara and Green Gulch. Maybe some of you will be inspired to write poetry at Margaret Austin Center, Auspicious Cloud West. But a lot of people at the time felt like the whole point of the beat movement was freedom without limitations. Teachings about structure and boundaries just weren't what they wanted to hear. Mel Weitzman recalled that when Tassajara opened, a lot of young people came looking for sort of a commune where they could just come and, and do their own thing. And when Tassajara became a Japanese style monastery, a lot of them left. <laughs> they didn't see a need for formal practice. And without a formal practice, their interest in Zen faded away. And I can relate because that's what happened to me too. In college, I was fascinated by the Buddhist concepts celebrated by the Beats and other writers of the time like Alan Watts. But I had no practice. I had never heard of Suzuki Roshi. I had never met a teacher. I'd never even tried sitting Zazen. And then college was over. The week after graduation, a friend and I got in my car. We headed for the beaches of North Carolina, hoping to unwind. But for me, the opposite happened. I had a panic attack. It was the first one I'd ever had, and it was terrifying. Of course, it didn't make any difference that I knew some Buddhist concepts because I didn't have a practice that might have given me some perspective on my fear. And my fear drove out any interest I had in subjects that seemed far removed from what I needed to do, which was move to a new place and work toward becoming a self-sufficient adult. So my way-seeking mind stopped seeking for about 18 years. 18 years after that first panic attack, I had another one, only my second and hopefully my last. <laughs> I had just celebrated my 40th birthday with some friends on the beaches of Puerto Vallarta and we were on the airplane home. All of a sudden, I found myself just going out of my mind and I couldn't try to walk it off because I was belted to my seat on a United Express flight somewhere over Mexico. Fortunately, I was sitting next to David, my partner at the time, and my husband now. David's here this morning, back in the corner there. Um, David knew exactly what to do. He took my headphones, he plugged them into his phone, and he played a recording by John Kabat-Zinn. It was a guided body scan, just a calm voice that gently encourages you to bring your attention to one part of the body at a time, starting with your toes and ending with the top of your head. When that was done, David played a guided meditation. And when that was done, I started it over again. I noticed that the anxiety was still there, but it no longer felt overwhelming. 
The panic was gone. I could breathe again. Some of you may know about John Kabat-Zinn. He trained extensively with Buddhist teachers, including Thich Nhat Hanh, but he doesn't talk much about Buddhism. He's made his career translating Buddhist concepts into secular terms so that no one would object when he brought them into hospitals where he taught mindfulness to patients suffering from stress and pain. When David and I got back to Houston, I borrowed his copy of John Kabat-Zinn's book, Full Catastrophe Living. Even without any Buddhist terminology whatsoever, my way-seeking mind recognized the flavor of Zen and woke up just a little bit. I started rereading some of my old books on Buddhism and I found some new ones. One of my favorite books was by Joko Beck. Like John Kabat-Zinn, she had a gift for explaining Buddhist concepts in terms that Americans can easily accept using simple analogies and simple English. One day, auspiciously, I saw on the Houston Zen Center website that a class was starting soon, and the reading material was a book by Joko Beck. It felt like a big step to come to a Zen Center. Maybe it felt like a big step for some of you too. It helped for me that I'd been in this building before. Before this was auspicious cloud temple, it was just a house where my friends Carlene and Jeff lived with their two sons. I'd been here in the Zendo when it was their living room and I already knew where the restrooms were. <laughs> <laughs> So David and I came to the class. The class was taught by Trisha. And what I remember most about it now is how Trisha immediately made me feel like I belonged here. I signed up for more classes and began coming on Sundays. I met my teacher, Galen Roshi, and so many bodhisattvas in this temple. Galen Roshi encouraged me to sit zazen more regularly and sign up for a one-day sitting, and after a while, my first sashin. I've tried to sit pretty regularly since then, but one thing I've noticed recently, especially as I've been thinking about this talk, is that even now, a lot of the time, my way-seeking mind would rather read about Zen than actually practice Zen. <laughs> Reading about Zen can be really interesting. And practicing Zen sometimes can be really hard. Even when I'm on the cushion, my mind often wants to think about Zen instead of practicing Zen. Of course, our practice cannot be reduced to an intellectual exercise. It engages the entire body, which includes the mind. Eihei Dogen, the founder of our school of Soto Zen in 13th century Japan, is very clear about this in his Fukanza Zengi, or Instructions for Meditation. He tells us, you should therefore cease from practice based on intellectual understanding, pursuing words and following after speech, and learn the backward step that turns your light inwardly to illuminate yourself. If you want to attain suchness, 
you should practice suchness without delay. Whenever we chant the Fukan Zenki during service, I feel like that's the reminder I need about what our practice is. It is to practice suchness without delay. I don't think there's really a logical stopping point for a way-seeking mind talk. The path to practice kind of merges into the path of practice and just keeps continuing on. So I thought I'd choose to end this talk with a story about the founder of our temple, Tenshin Reb Anderson Roshi. Tenshin Roshi led one of the first sashims I attended and I'd been encouraged to take the opportunity to meet with him for Dokusan, a one-on-one practice discussion. I was excited, but I was a little intimidated too. I had absolutely no idea what to say to him. What I ended up telling Tenshin Roshi was that I'd been coming to a greater appreciation for our traditions, our practice forms, and the teachings of our ancestors. I was learning about the four immeasurables and the five aggregates and the six paramitas, about the puzzling but mind-expanding tales involving our ancestors and the Buddha. I told Tenshin Roshi I'd heard that in some temples, like those in Joko Beck's Ordinary Mind School of Zen, on the altar they have a plain slab of stone but I was glad to practice in a temple where the altar holds a statue of Shakyamuni Buddha. Looking back on that, I'm a little embarrassed. It must have been really obvious that I was coming to him with the not so ulterior motive of getting a little pat on the head, maybe a gold star in my permanent record. Reb did not give me a gold star. (laughs) He just said, actually, both temples have pieces of stone on their altars. Ours is shaped like a Buddha. Theirs isn't. And he gave this little, little shrug. I'm pretty sure he didn't mean that our traditions are not important or that paying homage to the Buddha is not important. I think I would have figured that much out, even if he hadn't had this sort of mischievous look in his eye. But it took me a while to try to figure out what he was saying. I think maybe he was saying something like this. Don't study our Zen traditions to show you're a good student and get a gold star. Study to support your practice, but don't think that studying is your practice. Maybe he was also saying that for a novice practitioner like me, the most important thing is not what's on the altar in the Zendo. It's that you and your teacher and your Sangha are in the Zendo engaging in practice. Thank you all for being here this morning as we sustain each other in our practice.